Hello, everyone, and welcome to Police Off the Cuff, Real Crime Stories. I'm your host, Bill Cannon, a retired NYPD sergeant. And with me tonight, straight out of Brooklyn, retired NYPD detective Phil Grimaldi. How you doing, Phil? I'm doing pretty good, Billy, and I'm interested to get into the conversation on no-knock warrants. Well, tonight we have uh, almost a famous guy. Uh, yeah, I don't know about that. NYPD Sergeant Pat Russo, who also runs the New York City Kids and Boxing Program, which is Cops one of the kids. great... Cops and Kids. Cops and Kids Boxing Program, which is one of the best uh, programs for kids throughout throughout New York City. Keeps kids off the street, keeps kids out of... Uh, trouble and pat not only can talk the talk he can walk the walk i heard he has a pretty mean left hook too and he teaches these kids how to throw it so, so folks this is police off the cuff real crime stories we'll be back in one second it's a show with two retired detectives that were in the thick of new york crime fast and hectic they got some stories and some jokes, even an interview with the most popular folks. Off the cuff, off the cuff, one episode just saying enough. Get a little laughter and an interview too, it's maybe the best thing you can do. Hello, everyone. Welcome back. Uh, tonight, we're going to talk about, uh, if you haven't been following the news, there was a incident in Minneapolis where the Minneapolis police SWAT team did what's called known as a no-knock warrant. They hit an apartment, and in regards to this no-knock warrant, they had the keys to the front door. They opened the front door. Uh, they announced, they screamed out, police, search warrant, search warrant. They went in and... Uh, a young man, 22 years old, uh, Amir Locke, was sleeping on a couch. He had a blanket covering himself. But they saw a gun emerge from underneath the blanket. And one of the office, officers fired three shots and, and killed Amir Locke. I want to just play, before we get into it, before I introduce Pat Russo, who happens to be uh, an expert on no-knock warrants. He, he did a, a number of them and taught how to apply for no-knock warrants when he was on the NYPD. I'm going to play a little bit of the um, the body cam video from the Minneapolis police, and we'll take a look at this. This has been all over the news, and to talk about a city that's had uh, their share of uh, protests and their share of police incidents, it's, it's Minneapolis. So let me just put this, we'll play this on the screen. Team officer shot and killed a 22-year-old black man during a no-knock warrant raid on the apartment where he was staying. Tensions have been high in the city since the police killing of George Floyd. And with three former officers now on federal trial in that case, the governor is activating National Guard troops in case protests turn violent. Here's Jennifer Merrily of our... Billy, that volume's a little low. WCCO. Amir Locke was asleep just before 7 a.m. Wednesday when a Minneapolis SWAT team entered the apartment with their guns drawn. In police body camera video, 22-year-old Locke is seen lying on the couch wrapped in a blanket. A gun is visible in Locke's... So you can see that uh, he has a gun in his right hand. Uh, and that that's what the officers were screaming, uh, show me your hands, show me your hands. And that's what they reacted to, that gun that emerged from underneath that blanket. His hand just before officers opened fire, only about nine seconds after entering the apartment. I've seen it happen. I've seen it happen too many times. Today, Locke's parents are mourning their loss. I should be able to tell my son that I love you and he says I love you too. The use of no-knock warrants came under fire in 2020 following the shooting death of Breonna Taylor by police in Kentucky. That prompted Minnesota legislators to tighten restrictions on the tactic to, quote, limit the likelihood of bad outcomes. 
in the years since the policy change. Minneapolis police say the number of no-knock raids dropped to 90 from a previous average of nearly 140 a year. Locke was not listed on the original search warrant and has no known connection to the crime. Both a no-knock and a knock search warrant were obtained so that the SWAT team could assess the circumstances and make the best possible decision about So there you have it, Pat. Uh, a no-knock warrant resulted in the shooting of this uh, young man who was not the um, target of the warrant. Uh, Pat, you want to explain to our audience what and why the police would apply for a uh, no-knock search warrant? Well, and, and we really don't have a lot of information because we don't have the application for a search warrant. The application for the search warrant would reveal the PC, the probable cause that led them, led the judge to allow them to go into this apartment and conduct a no-knock search warrant. And it's obvious it was one thing that they did reveal that it was a homicide investigation. So if it's a homicide investigation, obvious that it would be a dangerous situation, which is the reason that he would grant the no-knock warrant as opposed to a regular search warrant. You know, Pat, I, I seem to remember from my uh, teaching days, uh, it was the, with a, uh, the exceptions to a warrant were the, the three E's, and it was um, evidence in danger or escape. So uh, if the person could destroy evidence, he could endanger the officers or could uh, escape. Those were the three reasons for a potential no-knock search warrant. Is that not correct? That's 100% that's correct. And most of the search warrants that we did, uh, we did it on patrol, were narcotics search warrants. And there was always a chance of weapons being in the location. And obvious, if we knocked on the door and announced ourselves, you know, the, the drugs would be uh, destroyed. The drugs would be flushed down the toilet or thrown out the window. You know, on another, uh, this has everything to do with search warrants also. I was part of the team uh, in Manhattan North Homicide that we invest reinvestigated uh, the search warrant that resulted in the death of Alberta Spruill. I don't know if you're familiar with that case. Um, I know it was bad. Alberta Spruill was an elderly woman and the co confidential in informant pointed out her apartment to the police as the apartment that there were narcotics and drugs in, excuse me, narcotics and guns in this apartment. So with that information, they obtained the search warrant. And back then, uh, emergency service, which is the NYPD SWAT team, we don't call it SWAT, we call it emergency service. They threw in a flashbang which we, you know, as a, uh, a flash grenade, it's very loud. It shakes the whole building. And it was the wrong apartment. And Alberta Spruill died of a heart attack. So it was a huge snafu, a huge mistake. And from that day on, I don't think emergency service gets the approval to use a flashbang because it has to be approved by the chief of department. So if you think the chief of department is putting his career and everything else on the line, to approve a flashbang, there was, wasn't a single, in the years that I had worked after that, there wasn't a single flashbang approved after that. Well, well I'll tell you the truth. I'm in 100% agreement. I'm not sure who the chief of the department was at the time. It was Adam Owen or Esposito. But I 1 million percent approved of that. I hated the flashbang. I didn't. Emergency service thought it was a necessary to shock, like a shock and awe type thing to to put them on alert that it's the police coming in and, and, and they could, while they were holding their ears from the, the concussion, I guess, or the percussion, you could uh, take control of the situation. I hated it. I hated it because m most of our search warrants were, we knew what we were dealing with in the location. And I'd, I'd really love to get into how we were able to get it approved, the approval for patrol precincts to uh, execute search warrants, because it's very important, I think, to where we're at right now. Um, we know our politicians always have a knee-jerk reaction. 
This was a tragedy. I'm not sure what this kid's background is, but I know he wasn't this subject. And from what they're telling us, the uh, the weapon was a legitimate weapon. The weapon was possessed. It was reg- yeah, it was registered, right. and he was a legal uh, firearm. Right. right. I'm, I'm not sure why he's yeah why he's holding it while he's sleeping. I'm not sure of the circumstances, which which I think their DCPI really needs to get some information out before Minneapolis starts to burn. And if the cops are wrong, hey, they got to own up to it. If they were wrong and they they killed this person, they got to own it. But we need the, the, the community needs the information before they burn down the city, put, put the information, get the information out there. Because right now what they're saying, well, you see the news, they're saying the cops executed another kid. And, and trust me, those cops went in there, they seen a gun, they feared for their life and they shot. It's not to be a justified shooting. Pat, I just want to echo something that you said about the flashbang. Now, I'm sure that, you know, the flashbangs, they disorient anybody that's in that close proximity to that thing when it goes off. And it's done for the safety of the officers that are making the entry. So in certain cases, I agree with you. There may not be an instance or a reason to deploy the, the flashbang. Uh, you know, if it's a 70-year-old woman in the house and they're looking for a, a one subject, uh, that might be a, 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 a situation where they don't want to deploy it. But, you know, if you're going into a location where there's several gangbangers and you know that there's guns in the apartment, that that's probably right. when something right. like that would be necessary to deploy. Now, I, I also want to back up a little bit on when you do the application for search warrant, it's not that easy that everybody thinks it is. You know, you have to develop the information. Then you have to, a lot of times you have an informant and you have to bring the informant in, in New York. This is how we did it. We would bring the informant down to the district attorney's office. They would actually write up the warrant application. Then you would have to take that uh, informant and go before the judge. And the judge would listen to all of the evidence, listen to the district attorney, listen to the officers. And then that judge has the ability to either sign the warrant and give all the, uh, you know, if you want a no knock or if there's any exclusions or, or things that you want added onto it. The judge can make that decision. Now, I've had situations where I had a very credible informant. Uh, We knew there were guns in the location. Uh, There were guns registered in the location, but the informant was telling us there was also uh, about a dozen illegal guns. And because the informant didn't know the exact number of the building, the judge said, I'm not signing it. We went crazy. We tried to get it done. We turned out, uh, turns out that we never got it done. We had brought that informant to the location on four or five occasions uh, to be certain that it was the apartment. One of the officers went in and shadowed the informant. He pointed out the door. We made him mark the door. There's a lot of things that go into the search. You know, know, Phil, let me just say it is people don't understand. It is easy to hit the wrong door. It doesn't, people think it's, Oh my God, how can you, most doors in housing projects have no numbers on them. See, Bill, you're making a good point there. I don't think it's, I wouldn't call it easy to make that mistake. I mean, in my opinion, or what I would do, I would try to make it as as exact as possible. But you're making a great point because ESU does the entry a lot of times. So, you know, uh, we do a recon a lot of times and we'll know the exact door. Now, they have to go based on what we're telling them. Uh, sometimes you can get a cell phone picture or something like that. But again, Billy, you're making a really good point. A lot of those doors look exactly alike. They get off the elevator on the wrong floor. They're going, you know, if you say when you get out of the elevator, you go to the right, it's the first door on the right. They're going to hit that door and they get off on the wrong floor by mistake. So it could happen. No, I, I uh, used to get one of those Dunkin' Donuts stickers and put it on the right corner of the door. Yeah, <laughs> you know? we, we, we did stuff like that too, with pieces of paper and stuff like that. But I think more importantly is the actual informant that's, working with you. If there is no informant, then you have to, you know, develop the information on your own. My point that I'm trying to make is, is that these warrants aren't granted on a whim. These warrants, there's a lot of work that goes into them. It's a high bar. It's a high bar to get over. Exactly. Great point. Right there. Yeah. Very difficult. And you know what? It should be. Yes, absolutely. This This is the most intrusive form of policing that there is to knock down somebody's door in their castle in their what we were taught in the cast in the police academy, that's the most intrusive form of policing, and 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 probably the most dangerous too, Pat. The, the most dangerous, and believe me, I wish that they could just do away 
with search warrants and we didn't have to do them because they're difficult. And Bill, you said something that it's easy to hit the wrong door. But when I taught, I taught every patrol precinct how to do it. We were the pilot to do this. And when I taught the, the patrol cops, now these are patrol cops. These are not narcotics detectives or not uh, or bureau detectives. These are patrol cops that were handpicked by the COs. And what Adam all told them is you better pick to do these search warrants in your command. You better pick the people that are going to make or break your career because they're going to go out there and they're going to do hard work. You better make sure they're good. So what I used to teach them is if there's an inkling, an inkling, there's a chance that it's the wrong door or you don't have enough information, you call it off. It's just paperwork. It's just paperwork. And you need to imagine the night before you hit that search warrant, what you would feel like if you're laying in bed and it's six o'clock in the morning and guys come crashing through your door and they're going to go through every all of your possessions in your home. You got to know that that's the spot you're looking at. And you got you got to be confident in your ability as, as an investigator, as a cop, to know you, you're getting the right spot and the right people. And it worked. It worked. When we did it, we, well, we did it in the 7-2. And, and why it was so successful in the beginning is because that patrol cop knows if you have a good patrol cop, he's worth his weight in gold because he knows the community. When we went and we taught housing to do it, and I tell you, housing cops were some of the best cops I ever worked with because they knew the housing development. They knew the good people were 98% of that community. And you knew you had those two apartments that were cancerous, that just destroyed the entire complex because they dealt drugs at them. They dealt guns at them. And they, they did all illegal activity out of that apartment. So if, if we had that knee-jerk reaction to this incident in uh, Minneapolis, this tragic incident, and they tell us here in New York, we can no longer execute search warrants, that that would be a devastating blow. 100%. Pat, uh... not, not to me, not to you, not to you, but the poorest communities in this city, it would be a, a devastating blow that, that I think would be the final nail in our coffin. Because right now, right now, cops need to know that they have the back of the elected officials and common sense has to prevail. Yep. Captain Chaos, thank you for the 499 Super Chat. Captain Chaos says, salute to Pat Russo. Well, thank you. I don't know if Pat knows who you are, Thanks. but uh, Real with Robo, Cannon, that's Detective Sergeant Cannon to you, Real with Robo, taking away no-knock warrants put the police in danger. I know I've only Absolutely. done a hun hundreds of them. Mistakes may happen, however, announcing to a career criminal could get them killed when... When TF, I guess I know what that means. Are these idiots in charge? Get it? SMFH. I'm not going to repeat what that means. But look, when I would do these search warrants and we were going after a real bad guy, which we did because I was in homicide, we were going after homicide perps. I would ha have ESU and we would do a tack plan. And yeah. we would have we would have the whole uh, setup of the apartment. If there were dogs in the apartment, we'd say the dogs are in this room. We think he's got guns in this room. There could be family members in that room. There could be a kid in that room. All of that information would be given to ESU so they didn't go in blindly. And, yeah, we wanted for a situation like that, we wanted a no-knock warrant. We're going after a murderer. Chances are he's got a gun or the gun he used in the murder in that very apartment. Absolutely. Yeah, that's a great point, Billy. And, uh, you know, a lot of work goes into it. And, obviously, in this particular case, it turned tragic. And, you know, we have condolences to the family that they lost their son. And I can understand and I don't want to challenge anything that they're saying on the news. Uh, you know, they're obviously grieving. They lost a son. And that kid might have been in the wrong place at the wrong time. But there's circumstances that, you know, they're clear as day on the video. Why did he have a gun? I said to Billy earlier before we went on the air, 
I have guns. I don't sleep with them under the pillow. I keep them close proximity, but I'm not sleeping with a gun in my hand, so to speak. And then he's in the apartment now on the news. They said that he was in the apartment of a family member. So he's in the apartment of a family member that could be wanted for a homicide. And he's got a fully loaded gun in his hand. I mean, it's an automatic. It looks like to me, they showed a gun on the news. I don't know if it's the actual gun, but it looked like a high capacity magazine. So, and you know, his hand was on the gun. Uh, an officer has to make a split second decision on whether or not he's about to be killed and, you know, use deadly physical force. It all happens in milliseconds. And uh, unfortunately for this young man, uh, he may have thought, I don't know what, but uh, it, they were in the apartment for about nine seconds before the shots went off. They announced who they were. They were screaming, uh, show us your hands, show us your hands. Uh, there's an old saying that comes into play here. You know, if you comply, you won't die. Uh, maybe he was confused. He was disoriented. I know there was no flash flashbang. They entered without having to knock down the door. They used the key. So uh, there's circumstances there that need to be investigated, obviously. But the way it looks from what the little bit that we know, and it really is a little bit, it's not a lot. We don't know a lot of the details. It does look like it's justified in my opinion. Um, and it's a, it's a tragic, horrible incident that 22 year old person uh, died in, you know, in this event, but, uh, you know, maybe there's something that we can find out further and, and there could be some, uh, you know, maybe future training that could be, uh, deployed and, and, and maybe prevent things like this from happening in the future. John Donahue, uh, when did the no knock warrant, uh, become legal to use? As far as I know, it's been legal for as long as they've been doing warrants. However, to get that special circumstance to have it, no knock, a judge has to approve it for the reasons that we were talking about. Evidence and danger escape, we've known as the three E's. And the biggest reason is in danger. If you're going after a real bad guy, uh, you don't want to give him the warning that you're coming through the door. You want to boom the door down. Narcotics does it every single day of the week. And they don't even employ ESU. They do their own search warrants. And they take that battering ram and they boom that door down and they go in there like... Uh, like gangbusters. And there's been tragedies, I believe, in the 90s. There was a sergeant from uh, Manhattan North Narcotics that was killed. I believe his name was John McCormick. And I think he was shot and killed by friendly fire in in uh, in regards to a, a no-knock search warrant. And so tragedies do happen on both sides of the fence. And to minimize this stuff, uh, we got people like Pat Russo that teach it to the patrol force and also, you know, in narcotics, I'm sure they're, they're giving training on how to conduct uh, search warrants. But, it, but it, it's my biggest concern is that we have that knee jerk reaction and we just say, that's it. There's no more search warrants like we did away with stop and frisk. I wasn't crazy when they used stop and frisk as as kind of an activity. I thought that was ridiculous. But stop and fit, frisk is an enormous tool that that cop needs on patrol for his safety and to take guns off the street. So I, uh, you know, one hundred percent, and you know, we're going to talk about that tomorrow night when we have um, a former Yonkers Police Commissioner Edmund Hartnett, and we're going to have current Nassau County Police Commissioner Patrick Ryder. We're going to talk about violent crime across the USA, and Edmund Hartnett uh, wants to talk about stop question and frisk on how we we somewhat lost that because of uh a lot of it had to do with the media too the media poisoned that procedure by by calling it stop and frisk instead of calling it stop question and frisk and they demonized it and uh we phil and i have talked about this in the past that it was overused for a while they yeah. were counting it as an activity check thing on on your the monthly, monthly activity, activity report for well, cops well, and and it, it sort of a lot of people that shouldn't have been stopped were getting stopped and it sort of violated the procedure because what we all know to stop question and frisk someone to frisk someone you need reasonable suspicion so i think a lot of those pat downs were happening minus reasonable suspicion and it pissed off the community and uh that's that's why we lost it. You know, overuse, I think, was why we lost it. You know, right. you, you, you know what I do with the kids in with, with the boxing program. So I I spoke to a couple of the guys, a couple of our boxers who live in Flatbush. 
in Park Hill in the, the Berry Houses, three kind of dangerous neighborhoods in New York City. And uh, I was speaking to one of our boxers from Park Hill. And, and when he seen the advertisement and he said, <laughs> no knock warrants, he texted me that no knock warrants are a license to kill. So I, 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 I asked him to watch tonight and I hope he's watching, but they are a necessary evil to address criminal activity because what these drug, the drug dealers are chameleons. They adapt to what's going on. They know that we're out in the street looking for drugs and guns. So what do they do? They get the kids in the street, the juveniles to carry the guns and the juvenile, when he gets locked up with, with this new system that we have, they roll out immediately. So, so they use the, the houses now as stash houses for the drugs and the guns. If we don't have that ability to go and execute a search warrant, if they take that tool away from us, I'm telling you, the only people that are going to suffer are the people that live in, in those communities where they, they just inundated. They're overrun with drugs and guns. And, and we need that ability. We, we can never... It's very easy for a cop to do nothing and get paid and collect a paycheck every two weeks. And what I'm afraid of is the atmosphere that's going on, that you, 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 you instituted a diaphragm law, you instituted the uh, qualified. They took away qualified immunity. Qualified, qualified in, in indemnity. And, and the cops... When we fought, we all came on in the eighties, correct? Yes. What, yep. what, what was the attitude in the eighties? The attitude was: I'm talking about the veterans that that won the job in the seventies. Their attitude was: let them kill each other and go take a report. And when I drove that veteran cop, because we were young cops, they always put you with a veteran, and they said, "Slow down, son." Let them kill each other. We'll go take a report. And I said to myself, I didn't take this job to become a report taker. I, 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 it's a cliche, but I kind of took the job with the all intentions. I'm going to be, uh, I'm going to be the guy that makes a difference. And and I know you two did because you did, you did in your career. And 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 I'm seeing because I'm with the boxing team, the NYPD boxing team, every day, and. They're losing that love of the job. Right now, what's going on in this country, they're losing that love of the job. If if cops go back to the old days to be report takers, we're done as a city. And you're seeing it happen in every major city across this country. So we need, Eric Adams is talking a good game. He needs to follow through now. He needs to follow through and he needs 100% to get behind the cops. And he needs to go talk to the unions, bring back qualified immunity, bring back, get rid of the diaphragm law, at least talk about it. At least the cops got to know that he has their backs. And then you, um, you got a great chief of department right now, Kenny Corey. We were sergeants together in the 7-2. So we did this work together. And, and it was... C-pop, everybody made fun of C-pop. But what came out of C-pop? Because they, they handpicked a bunch of cops and they put them in a unit and they said, go out there, be responsive to the community. And to be responsive to the community, you got to have every tool that's available to address the problems, especially in crime-plagued communities. If we take it away from them, and make it impossible for a cop to do his job, we're done. We're done. We're, we're yeah, gonna... Pat, you know something? We totally agree with you. Folks, this is Police Off the Cuff, Real Crime Stories. If you're not subscribed, please go on the YouTube, hit the subscribe button, ring that bell, give us a thumbs up. Uh, if you want to support us, join our Patreon. We have three levels. And if you want to join the YouTube uh, family of Police Off the Cuff, Go on our YouTube. We have five different levels. Join us and become you'll be in the you'll be part of the people with the green font in the chat 
uh, there. And uh, we could use your support with police off the cuff. You know, some of the things, Pat, that this also leads to, and um, I agree with you 100%, is you get these crazy city council people, and not just in New York, but they're talking about stopping cops from doing car stops. Could you imagine that taking away and they, uh, the right or the enforcement authority for a police officer to do a car stop? Where do you think the guns are being transported in? You think they're being they're gonna they're flying them on magic carpets? No, they're being transported in cars. So if you can't take away the the right or the enforcement ability for a cop to pull over a car and then to garner reasonable suspicion and do a search of that car, you know, guns are just gonna proliferate more than they are now. And you hear them, you know, we we had spoke about the other day when they had that meeting with President Biden, and of course he and some of the other progressives blamed it on the gun, not the per uh, pulling the trigger. You know, it's always the gun's fault, not the not the perpetrator, because they don't want to put anyone in prison. Right. That, okay. That's all window dressing, Billy. And oh. Pat, I just want to make one quick point all, about what you said. Okay. Yeah, I want to make one quick point about what you said earlier about the no-knock warrants. Now, I spoke with someone that saw the body cam video of the recent shooting of the two police officers, Jason Rivera and Wilbur Moore. Yeah. And, you know, they announced to, when, when they spoke with the mother and the brother of the perpetrator, they announced, they, they oh, it's police officer so-and-so, we want to talk to you. Would you come out of the bedroom? And they started to walk towards the bedroom. The bedroom door flew open and the shots just started flying. So now I'm going to compare that to uh, a warrant where you're announcing and a no-knock warrant. If you know someone, now obviously they didn't know that he had a firearm in there. They wouldn't have approached it that way. But I'm just trying to make an analogy that had they not announced who they were and they sneakily went in there and burst into the door and he was laying on the bed, he might not have been able to get to that the bazooka, whatever you want to call it. It was a 45 with a 40-round clip, whatever it was. But they not knowing he had a firearm, they announced themselves. They asked him to come out. They were trying to do a typical, uh, you know, family dispute resolution and they lost their lives. So there are instances where you cannot get around doing a no knock warrant. If you know that someone is, you know, wanted for murder or there's drugs or there's guns and, and, you know, it's, it's a three-time loser that doesn't want to go back to jail, whatever the case may be, you cannot announce your presence and not place yourself in grave danger. And the officers that were just shot and killed, I think that is a testament to that, even though it's two different situations, it wasn't a warrant situation, but they announced themselves They Would you come out of the bedroom? They walked towards the bedroom, the door flew open and the bullets just started flying. They never even had a chance to, to draw their guns, whether or not they returned fire is still in question. But I know the first officer, Jason Rivera, never even got his gun out of his holster because he was met with a fuselage of bullets. So that's well, Phil, that's why when you hear these news reporters say only nine seconds after they entered the apartment, are they kidding? That's you know a lifetime I mean? in a shootout. Most yeah, shootouts it, are two and a half seconds, two to three yeah. seconds. Well, uh, when they, they say that, that only nine seconds, as if they should have waited yeah. till he started shooting them. You know, listen, it's easy to Monday morning quarterback yeah. all this stuff. I saw a report. One of the reporters said, "Oh, the gun. Uh, his finger wasn't on the trigger of the gun. Of course, his finger was on the side of the gun. In that, when they froze the frame, frame, and they said that the gun was pointed down. So the officer needs to wait until the gun is pointed at him, and in a split second, a hundredth of a second, he could have a, a bullet go through his brain. That's not how it works, you know." Uh, you're making split second decisions, Pat, you know, Bill, you know, we've all been in that situation where you have to make that split second decision and it's just not easy. It's a difficult one. And, and unfortunately it was tragic for that family, but the way it looks, it looks like it was justified at this point to me. Anyhow, guys, I'm going to play a little bit of this. This is uh, the community responding uh, to the Omar Lock, Amir, excuse me, Amir Lock shooting. Minneapolis needs to wake up and come to realization that we are in trauma. Pain is palpable among Minneapolis residents outraged over the police killing of Amir Locke, demanding answers about how it could have happened that Locke lost his life during the execution of a search warrant he wasn't even on. How did nine seconds of an arrest warrant, our search warrant, end up with a man life. For members of the community group, the Unity Community Mediation Team that's tried to partner with the Minneapolis Police Department for two decades, this news feels all too familiar. As a young black man myself, I couldn't sleep last night because I seen my nephew, 
I seen myself when I was younger and I seen my young son as he get older. And I asked myself, is this the reality that they gonna have to live? Locke's family says he lawfully owned a gun with a permit to carry. Amir was a gun carrying licensed individual. NRA should be excited about that. And gun rights advocates say this raises alarm since last year was a record year for gun ownership. So now every day we're entering into a situation where law enforcement officers may encounter somebody who is lawfully armed inside their home. The use of no-knock warrants is counteractive to that right to self-defense. Caroline Cummings, WCCO, 4 News. So you heard the other side of this, um, partly the other side of this argument. Um, they also mentioned in, uh, the, that other case with Breonna Taylor. And I can't see how that they can mention that when the person she was with started shooting at the cops. And she right. got, she got struck when they returned fire. I, yeah. I just don't see how that's even uh, a questionable shooting. She, she got she got caught up in the crossfire. Go ahead, Pat. But but that that's what my fear is. These are horrific situations. When anyone is killed, it's a horrific situation. Of course. But you can't have a knee jerk reaction and stop the police from doing take away a very important, a very effective tool to to stop crime to to take back blocks and and apartments and. Uh, and and to get to those recidivist criminals that are, are cancerous, that are destroying our communities, it's it's tragic. But there needs to be common sense. Can we do better? Of course, maybe we could do better. And but uh, I, I I just don't want that knee jerk reaction. We 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 made this. We made this. We helped the New York City Police Department led the way in this country to make this the safest city in America. And we gave it all up. Kind of because I believe people don't understand history. People forget history and you're doomed to repeat it. But we were able to do it through common sense police work. Working with the community, identifying that minute percentage of the community that we needed to target and go after, lock them up. But but you need right now another another thing Eric Adams has to do. He's got to tell these district attorneys, I need a liaison. I need you to work. I need a problem solving, position policing district attorney to work with our cops to make sure when we target people that are destroying. People that not not we're deciding they're destroying the community. People that the community is deciding. The community is telling that B cop on the street, that NCO, that this is the guy that's destroying 49th Street between 4th and 5th Avenue. He's getting the kids to go out and deal drugs and run guns, but he doesn't touch anything. He's got everything in his house. We have to have that ability to use that tool of a no-knock search warrant and go and lock them up. We need those tools. Don't take it away because this is our city. And, and if we're, we're willing to give it up, then then you, you, you're going to go back to a, a police force of report takers. And, and you know what? I encourage a lot of kids that came through the boxing program are now New York City police officers, including my son. And, and I'm telling you right now, my son could have came into my business and been uh, and ma made a nice living, and 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 not take home eleven hundred dollars every two friggin' weeks to do a job to that where you where you just lambasted by uh, politicians that don't know any better. Yeah. So it's it, I think it's important, like they, like platforms like this, and you, I I gotta hope that a lot of civilians are watching and they understand. Cops don't want to go knock down people's doors, it's a lot of work. It's a tremendous amount of, it's a burden. It should be because it's very intrusive, but back to cops. They want to do what you're asking them to do. Keep our city safe. Did you see today's post? This week, 
Crime is up 60%. Yeah, I saw that. Year to date, 38%. We're going in the wrong direction. I'm going in the wrong direction. We don't need this tragic incident like the Floyd incident, the Floyd death to destroy our country and divide us. It, it's just, it's, it's, we all, yeah, have you know, to- Pat, that, that destroyed the uh, policing on a national it level. Did. And it uh, it's and like, then- if, if, a, if a surgeon killed someone in California, are all surgeons in the whole country going to be lambasted because someone made a mistake, but that was the way, that's the way policing is this guy. And, and there's not a cop I know that would, uh, everyone said what Chauvin did was a hundred percent wrong. But that Absolutely. doesn't make the whole profession of policing wrong because he did something wrong. You know, guys, we just got to take a quick break. Philly, I just want you to do uh, sure. give our little ad for Joe Murray. Joe Murray, attorney at law. Have you found yourself in a jam? Are you in lead of legal counsel in the New York area? Do you need a victim's advocate? Well, Joe Murray is your man. He's not only an experienced trial attorney, he is also a retired 15-year member of the NYPD. He literally knows both sides of the fence. His website is jmurray-law.com. His telephone number is 646-838-1702. Or you could email Joe at joe at jmurray-law.com. Uh, Real with Robo, I just want to mention, uh, you, you mentioned um, in your in your post that, um, uh, I'll read it right now. Hindsight is twenty twenty. Can we speak about how the criminal could not have done the crime? Then the cops wouldn't have been there at all. Real with Robo, yeah, you happen to be correct. However, this young man was staying in an apartment apparently that may have may have, and we don't know all the information, belonged to the subject of this warrant. So his situation was he was in the wrong place at the wrong time, and we can't say at this point that he's guilty of any wrongdoing whatsoever than, uh, you know, having that gun, even though, and we're told that that was a legal gun, but pulling it out wasn't the smartest thing to do. But as far as criminality, uh, at this point, we don't think he's involved in any criminality. He happened to be in an apartment that potentially, and they're not saying, the Minneapolis police aren't saying yet whether that was the apartment of the subject. I think, because they apparently hit three locations in that complex. So, that wa- the warrant uh, uh, was for a person that was wanted for a homicide, and right. they believed they had pretty good information to believe that that person that was wanted was in that location. And, you know, listen, there's a lot of conjecture going on. We don't have a lot of the facts yet, but why was he in that apartment? Supposedly it's a relative of his that lives there or someone. They said it was a family member's apartment. Why is he there with a gun? And I think those are some of the questions that need to be answered. He could be totally innocent. And again, we stressed that already. We all said this is a tragic incident. No 22-year-old kid should lose his life over something like this. And those parents, I can't, you know, I can't sympathize with them enough. They lost a 22-year-old son. But, you know, there's going to be a lot of details that are going to come forward in the next uh, few weeks, I'm sure. And uh, a lot of those questions really should be answered. You know, um, who was this person? Why was he in the apartment? Why did he have the gun? Even though everybody's saying he had the legal right to own that handgun, uh, they're saying he had a carry permit. We don't know that to be true. It could have been a premise permit, a target permit. We really don't know. But uh, even if he had the right to carry that gun, did he have a need to to have it with him that night? Was there some reason that he was protecting somebody? Maybe, uh, you know, the person who was wanted for this murder could have been uh, some type of a, a dispute or a fight or something. A lot of things that we don't know. So I think that uh, we're going to have to pay attention to that. And again, Pat, you're making a great point that because of this situation, this incident, it's a tragic incident. We don't know all the details, but now we're going to knee-jerk reaction and just whip away, rip away rather the uh, the NONAC warrants. And what happens is uh, when you're going to try and arrest somebody, you're going to place officers in danger, like those two officers that were killed up in Harlem last week. Uh, you know, we have to really think long and hard about that. So I'm sure uh, an intensive investigation is going to be done. Let's get all the facts out there. And like you said in the beginning, Pat, if there's chips that are going to fall in the direction of these guys did something wrong, well, then that's what's going to have to be. If they made a mistake and they did something wrong, they're going to have to deal with that. But they need to have, you know, the, the local leaders should be calling for calm. Let's wait for the investigation. I mean, you know, we already see from the video, he had a gun in his hand. So that's kind of, you know, 
leading towards justification for the shooting. And, uh, you know, we're going to get these people who say, oh, they could have shot him, shot the gun out of his hand. That's television. That's not reality. So uh, I think we have to pay attention to all of those things. And I agree with you, Pat, that we shouldn't have a knee-jerk reaction. CR Patrick, Generation X, thank you so much for the $5 super, uh, super sticker. Uh, folks, you know, th- all of these situations, uh, we've seen a lot of them across the country. And the way a really good professional police departments work is that they have a good deputy commissioner of public information office and they get the information out there so that will dispel the rumors misinformation sometimes the press pours gasoline on all fires so put those fires out before they start them and get the correct information out there uh from from the police department and right now we're not seeing minneapolis putting out a lot of information so a lot of the information we're getting is from the press, which may or may not be correct, probably most most likely is not correct. You're getting the information from the press, and you're getting the information from the from Amir's attorneys, from the family's attorneys, and, and obviously they're gonna put their own slant on it. But it, but it it was. I think I think DCPR they should learn. Our, our DCPI is pretty good in New York. We we. They, they get on it. They get on it and they get the information out to the public as soon as possible. Because right now it's all speculation. That's why I really, I really don't even want to comment on, on, on the situation because I, I hate to speculate when somebody got killed and, and, and I hate to be wrong. Absolutely, Pat. And, you know, there's another part of it. You know, you got these radical groups like Black Lives Matter. They're going to throw gasoline onto the well, fire too. And, and and for their own agenda, they're going to- I'm believing that they're they're, they're nuded right now with, with all their problems they have going on because it's it's really not getting, and I'm happy about that. The national press that uh. Well, I think Pat, I think that you're right. They were nude a little bit. They have some uh, financial problems that have come to light, but they may try to jump onto something like this to take the spotlight yeah, off of right. that. Well, and well, I just well, think that. There's clear video of the gun being in the kid's hand. And I think that's probably why you can't get too much steam in the wrong direction. And listen, again, you made a great point. We don't know enough about it to really say one way or the other. But I mean, when you see the entry in that nine or 10 seconds and you see the gun in the kid's hand, uh, we don't know what happens next. But, uh, you know, there's going to be an investigation. We're going to probably get all of the details of it. And we really can't say 100% certainty. Like th- there's people on the news, they're saying, oh, he had a full carry We don't know it to be fact. So again, we have to wait till all of those facts release. But they really should. I mean, they, they've had this happen in their city before. They really should be calling for calm until the investigation is completed or at least, you know, a couple of days down the line. Let's get some of the facts, all the interviews done. And, you know, we can put it all together and come out with a clearer picture of what took place, you know minutes before Minnesota law says no-knock warrants can be conducted unless a judge agrees that a nighttime search is necessary to prevent the loss, destruction, or removal of objects or to protect the searchers or the public. Under the law, police have to justify a no-knock warrant and two high-ranking police officials need to sign off on the application. Search warrants are under seal, meaning all questions will stay unanswered for now. At the Capitol, lawmakers passed the no-knock law last summer after intense negotiations. House Democrats initially tried to ban no-knock warrants, except in first-degree murder cases, hostage-taking, kidnapping, terrorism, or human trafficking. But police opposed those limits. At a committee hearing last March, St. Cloud Chief Blair Anderson said they would hurt police investigations. And he said the use of no-knock warrants is judicious. I am opposed to this bill because it is dangerous and it is going to create an exponentially higher level of danger in an already inherently dangerous profession. In his first comments since Locke's killing, Governor Tim Walz today called on lawmakers to make more changes to Minnesota's no-knock warrant law. He did not say what changes he specifically wanted. House Speaker Melissa Hortman, a Democrat, said lawmakers need more information to know whether the Minneapolis raid followed state no-knock warrant law. Karen? So there you have it. That's the some of the history of it in, in Minneapolis. But um, I'm, I'm going to give you an example of how, and I'm sure the statute of limitations are up that I can't get in trouble at this point. 
on uh, just using your brain to do a search warrant. And and Chief Anamona, I know I know he's a big fan. He watches, and I was working for him at the time. We we would sometimes do a search warrant, and I like I said, I didn't like, and I'm going to piss off Jack Cambria and a lot of my emergency service buddies. But I wish that we were trained to do the search warrants on our own, only because you did it, you own it. Now you do it because when we had to bring emergency service in, we knew intimately as, as that neighborhood cop, we knew the subject locations we were going into. And a lot of the spots were just was a mother and she had bad kids, kids that went bad that were dealing drugs out of the apartment. And we knew it wasn't appropriate to go and throw a flash bang into the location and we knew how to get in there we would and, and i tell you a couple of times we were we were mandated by the rules to use emergency service to execute the search warrant but i had a common sense co at the time and i went through the whole scenario of what we were going to do and we just used our brain we went there with flowers like we were making a delivery to the mother and we had a backup team as soon as she opened the door Man, we got a search warrant for your house, and we went. We recovered all the drugs. We locked up the kids. Just use your brain to do things. There are, there are times when you can do that. In circumstances where you don't know the situation, then, you, then safety's got to play a, a role. And there are circumstances when you know that there's bad guys in there. They're gang members. They're involved with shootings. They're running guns out of the place. Obviously, you're not going to deliver flowers to the location. You're going to execute it with emergency this, service. This is uh, uh, the body cam video. This is, right. This is it, going it in with key. Yeah, it shows no. that they have a key to the apartment, which is always uh, – that would be the choice for most rather than yeah. to have to break sure the locks and move the door. door. I'm sure, yeah. I'm sure you, you do that. So the, the, the managing agent may have had a key. They may have right. contacted I'm sure. That's, right. that's good and, police work. Yes, absolutely. Right. And, and that's, that's good tactics because you don't have to stop banging on the door, knock it down. Uh, again, in, if you had to do that, you're sort of giving some kind of warning that the police are coming in. This was actually best case scenario where they had the key and they were going in so they didn't have to knock down the door. All right, let's, and, play, let's play it right now. Amir Locke reportedly wasn't listed on the no-knock warrant, but was killed seconds after police entered the home after officers found him holding a gun. It was has some wondering if something like this could happen here at home. WCNC Charlotte's Lana Harris joins us live with where the practice stands here in the Carolinas. Lana? Yes, so you may remember these so-called no-knock warrants were thrust into the headlines with Breonna Taylor's death a few years ago in Louisville, Kentucky. People were horrified at the thought of police potentially entering the wrong home and killing an innocent person. In the event of a no-knock warrant, we all, you know, I think, pray. Once again, the practice of no-knock warrants are facing widespread criticism. Body cam footage shows 22-year-old Amir Locke had less than 10 seconds after Minnesota officers entered the apartment without knocking before he was fatally shot. Charlotte NAACP President Corin Mack says that could have been anyone. I think most people don't know what to do because you have no authority. They're in full authority. There, there, there is so many ways things can go bad. Attorney Tyler Bailey says there are reasons jurisdictions believe a no-knock warrant is necessary. They're typically used in high-risk situations where the law enforcement believes that somebody's going to either get rid of some evidence or their life or somebody's life may be in jeopardy if they notify the person in the dwelling that they're the police. Bailey says the problem is the process isn't perfect. Warrants are, are, are handled sometimes ru the rushed. If you go to the wrong address and a no-knock warrant, I mean, that's a recipe for disaster. Bailey says he believes there are incidents where a no-knock warrant could be necessary. But I think it needs to be a very, very high standard if they're going to allow that. I mean, let's say there was a kidnapping situation or a terrorist hostage situation. In a situation like that, okay, and you know exactly where they are, it makes sense for a, a no-knock uh, warrant. No-knock warrants are currently allowed in North Carolina, though some jurisdictions like CMPD have banned its use. 
in South Carolina, a moratorium on the practice is in place until judges are given better criteria on when they should be issued. It's uh, sub- Well, you could see other jurisdictions have their own laws, their own rules as to when they could be used. Uh, that that uh, an attorney there was very articulate in talking about why and how they're issued. And there's a high level of... Uh, a high bar to get a no-knock warrant, as there should be. There should be, absolutely. The threshold that needs to be met is high. I know in New York City it is, and a lot of the judges that are liberal, they they really gave us a hard time when we did apply for them. And if they grant it, it's usually based on a lot of good evidence and confidential informant and stuff like that. But, Bill, I want to make one quick point, too. You know, when I did some research on this, a lot of the stories that they came up, they immediately said that um, – the victim in this case that was killed was black and the officer was white and they right away went to race. Now it doesn't matter in my mind, whether the person is black, Brown, uh, white, it really doesn't matter. It's a tragic situation. The, the, the ethnicity of the person that dies in a situation like this really, I don't think, and I think you guys will both agree with me that police officer Mark Hanneman went out and said, I'm going to kill somebody today. That's not what went through his mind. He was placed into a very, a dangerous situation. It was a split second decision. We're going to find out all of the facts, but right away, the media is trying almost every story that I read on the internet immediately put, you know, threw in there that he was black and that the officer was white. And they may or may not even be right on whether the officer is white. We see a picture of him. So he's obviously African-American, but we don't know what the officer is. There's no picture of him as of yet. So uh, I think that they try to throw that in there. It inflames tensions. It's unnecessary and it really shouldn't matter. No one should die at the hands of the police unless their actions cause a situation where you know, uh, deadly physically, deadly physical force could be used against them. So I just, I hate when they throw the race, uh, the race card right into the whole, uh, equation. Yeah. For, for obvious reasons, so do I, it's, it's, it's a divide situation that I'm not sure what they get out of it, but they want to, they seem like they want to divide this country by race and, uh, and, and, I, and I told you, I, I was speaking to the kids in the gym, and what they said was, Pat, you don't understand when you're in where we live, you, you have more of a fear of home invasions, people kicking in your door and pretending to be the police, and, 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 and that's what they're afraid of. So, so he was of the mindset that just, just do away with them. But then, then I kind of changed his mind when I said, do you understand? Because there were apartments in the Park Hill houses that were cancerous, that destroyed the Park Hill houses. And once we were allowed to execute search warrants, we were able to follow through and get them evicted and work with the landlord. We gave the good people in that building. So, so there needs to be a meeting. There needs to be... You need to do search warrants. Maybe we need to do them better. But I think we do them here. If, if you look on a lot of uh, NYPD social media pages, and, and I don't think they're getting enough credit, they're coming up with guns every every day. Yeah. Every day. You got guys going out there on patrol and the FIOs, which, which was the post program that came out of the 7 precinct. They're going out there every day and getting guns off the street. And, and Eric Adams just talked about it, I think, today. I think 400 guns they got just the beginning of the year. And those are, those are guns. The guns that, that are coming off of bad guys. They're not the gun buyback program, which is a great program. I don't care what they do as long as they get the gun off the street. But these are guns that are coming out of, uh, coming out of the hands of bad guys. But now, Imagine how many guns they could come up with, Pat, if they had yeah, stop no, question they had first back and they had yeah. anti-crime back. Yes, that's that's the only way we're going to tackle this crime problem. And if if the numbers don't scare you right now, then you're crazy. Then you're crazy. Then then you live in a gated community somewhere, and you don't have to worry about it. And you don't watch the news, apparently, the local news right, I mean, right. every day. Every day is a different shooting. Uh, uh, I saw in the news, 
Yeah. The news earlier today, there was a kid firing shots that hit a, it's hit, hit a city bus. He was shooting at two other gangbangers, and he hit a city bus. So, I mean, yeah. it's every day. It's every day. Uh, look, look, look at the videos every day. And, and you know what the problem is, too? They, they instituted into the perpetrator that you're a victim. You're a victim, and <clears throat> what they're doing is they're fighting now. You have a district attorney in Manhattan that says he's not going to prosecute resisting arrest. You know what? That's insane. That's insane. That puts every cop's life in danger. Not only the cop's life in danger, that puts the perp's life in danger, the person that's resisting arrest, and the people around them. Because it creates a, a volatile situation. And we all know how difficult it is to handcuff somebody that doesn't want to be handcuffed. And you're going to tell the public that because you're creating this victimhood that you're not going to prosecute resisting arrest? I just I just thought that was the, the most egregious thing out of the many stupid things that he put into that memo, that you're not going to prosecute resisting arrest. Now, I'll tell you right now, Eric Garner will be alive today if he would have complied. If he put his hands Sorry. behind his back and he uh, complied with a lawful order to put his hands behind his back, he'd be alive today. And most of this, most of those horrific situations that Torah bought our country, if they complied with the lawful order to submit to arrest, they would be alive. And then you fight it out in court. And 100%. you go to the lawyer to sue the police department. You know, but folks, this is a uh... message needs to be sent. This is you know police off the cuff, real yeah. crime yeah. stories. Uh, tomorrow night at uh, 9 p.m., we have former Yonkers Police Commissioner Edmund Hartnett and current Nassau County Police Commissioner Patrick Ryder. They're going to be on the show, and we're going to we're going to talk about uh, crime across cities in the U.S. the the explosion of crime. Uh, partly due to the decarceral policies of DAs, bail reform, and just the out-and-out refusal to prosecute. It's keeping dangerous criminals out on the street. So we're going to talk about that tomorrow night with former Yonkers PC Edmund Hartnett and current Nassau County PC Patrick Ryder. So uh, to please tune in for a very interesting conversation tomorrow night. Guys, we've hit over an hour Philly, I'm going to give you your last words, and then we'll, I'll give Pat his last words. Go ahead. Last words. I just wanted to make one quick point about what he was just saying. Uh, you know, if you comply, uh, you don't die. And, uh, you know, th there's there's just so many things that we need to talk about. And I just wish a guy like Eric Adams, again, would, would get that message out. Uh, uh, listen, I, I don't want to call on Al Sharpton to do anything, but some community leaders – they need to get together and they need to say exactly what you just said, Pat. Comply, fight it out in court, don't resist, and these horrible tragedies would not occur. Some of those people that were killed in police custody would be alive. They wouldn't have died that day in particular. That's 100% true. Pat, thank you so much for coming on tonight. I think it was a great conversation. I think we uh, got a lot of good information out to our listeners and uh Keep up the good work and with the kids in boxing. I, I We always talk about how the program that you uh, run is really, I mean, you're saving kids' lives. You're taking kids off the street. You're occupying them, keeping them out of gangs, keeping them out of trouble. It's a great thing. God bless you, Pat. And uh, thanks again for coming on. Thank you, Bill. Thank you, Phil. And thank you, Bill. And uh, I, I need to to give a shout out to, to my sergeant when I was a rookie cop. Andy McGooey, and he was the king of community policing, and he really did. He taught He taught not only me, but you had him on before, Jack Cambria. He taught uh, the chief of department, Kenny Corey, how to, be, how to be more than cops, how to be good people that cared about the community, which made you a good cop. And, and it was, he, he just had the ability to put together a team and to mold us into really, really, really effective, good cops. And a lot of that stuff that we did as the CPOP program morphed into things that were replicated throughout the city. And uh, because this is New York City, when we dropped crime, 
the entire country copied what we did in the 7-2. And uh, I, I, just, I just wanted to throw it out there because it's a guy that, that really never got the credit he deserved. Andy McGooey. Maybe you could have him on, Bill. Absolutely. Oh, Pat, thank you so much. And thanks for uh, suggesting this topic tonight. We were actually going to take tonight off, but you made us work tonight. And that's okay. Yeah, for Bill, 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 uh, Joe Murray, a shout out too. Uh, Joe Murray was a boxer. He was on the yeah. boxing team and he is my lawyer too. He's number one. That's great. That's great. Good man, boss. Joe Murray. So folks, uh, thank you so much for listening tonight to Police Off the Cuff. Everyone that's uh, our members and our in our um, Patreon or YouTube members, thank you so much for helping us out. And have a great night and be safe. Stay safe, everyone. Good night. One episode, just sitting in the